Hello, and welcome to Northeast Christian Church's online service. We're so excited to have you with us. Make sure to subscribe to NECC on all social media platforms. And to listen to our messages, follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you and enjoy the service. There we go. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. You know what? I was just thinking I need a place for this water. I've never uh, really done anything beyond tap water and like market basket water, but somebody gave me this essential uh, overarching H2O pH balanced water, and it just tastes so good. But I'm not paying $17 for any water. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for those of you that were here for prayer. I, I noticed one important detail is the time of the men's breakfast was not on the slide. Does anyone know that off the top of their head? Nine. Nine. So we get to sleep in? That's awesome. Yes. Stay up late, use the remote, fall asleep on the couch, drool, and don't even shower. Just show up. Nobody's going to judge you. We're guys, bro. So... Uh, we appreciate you. Um, I might have actually gotten a few people who aren't going to come now because <laughs> I told people not to shower. But so appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. This Saturday was absolutely awesome with the time of prayer. I encourage you, this Saturday is going to be our last Pray First Saturday. Would you just make that a priority? Would you just buy? It's one hour. You can totally get everything done that you need to. It surprised me who's been here. And uh, I encourage you to do that. Bring your kids if need be. And uh, they let them see what prayer is like. But it's been absolutely beautiful. I also understand you have lives. Life gets busy. Let, let it be, if you haven't been able to get to any of these this one Saturday, get yourself here. And uh, I want to just welcome everyone online. Thank you for everyone that's here in person. We've been going through this month, as we do every year, spiritual disciplines, uh, commitments. And we threw in some different ones this year. The, the commitment to or the spiritual discipline of forgiveness how important that is. Jesus put that central. We, we've talked about prayer. We've talked about God's word. Today, I want to talk to you about the spiritual discipline of tithes and offerings. So if you'll pray with me, I'm going to need God's help for us to really hear what God has to say on this, not what guilt and shame has to say on it, not what manipulation has to say about it, but what God's word and God's truth has to say about it. Let's pray. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I pray that your word um, would have its way here today. Lord, sanctify us by the truth. You, you said to the disciples, you prayed for them, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So Lord, sanctify us, clean us, draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is really unique. I'm not uncomfortable talking about this topic. We, on the other hand, we don't talk about this topic all the time. In fact, if you've noticed Really, when it comes to giving within the church, we put up boxes in the back. You can do this online if you're streaming or whatever. But uh, everything I say from here forward, we've already taken the offering. So it's not like we're going to come back and say, okay, let's shake everybody down. But I want you to know that I realize that this is a touchy subject for some people. And so my goal today is to talk about this based off of what God has to say to us and also... Um, what, what truth has to say, but it, it's a little bit difficult for me to do this because 
of two things. One, skepticism, and two, recent church history. And so we have a slide presentation. We're going to do our best to try and keep this in sync. Ain't no lie, baby. Bye, bye, bye. Sorry, we're going to do our best to keep it in sync. But uh, first of all, I want you to know Pastor Dylan had nothing to do with the formation of this message, but a while back, uh, just sending your, hu your husband, Ruben, helped us create a graphic. And so we created this thing. You can click to the next one. We call them Dylan Dollars. Boom. <laughs> yeah, gangsta. Dilly dilly. And so you, we looked for him, man. We made Dylan dollars and we were handing them out to everybody. It was so fun. But I want you to know, please, even though he is the driving graphic for this, it's just a cartoon. This isn't Dylan speaking. This is me speaking. And hopefully we hear God speaking. But I want to talk to you about skepticism because it's easy on just a, as soon as we say we're going to talk about giving, we're going to talk about tithing, right? As we're going to talk about offerings. Skepticism says, well, you just want my money. Or you just want more money. Or you want a new parking lot. Yes, for the, for the record, yeah, we do. <laughs> you just want LED panels. I do. I really do. I'm going to be honest with you. You want a raise. You want to hire more people. You're over budget and you need money and you need to make up the difference. You just want my money. And that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, you know, when the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you can find the out by just saying, well, I'm not cheerful, I'm not going to do it. What, what God means is, is that that's going to do about as much for you if you give begrudgingly about as much as you do if you were just not even following Jesus and just said, I don't give to the church, forget it. It means nothing. God wants our heart to be right. See, because the truth of the matter is, is that anything that is a necessity in our life, I believe that God's word has principles and guidance for us, and finances are definitely one of those. Well, let me tell you beyond skepticism how money has become a taboo topic. Now, there, I could go all the way back to church history. This is not a college setting. I'm not going to do that. But let me talk to you initially here about the 1970s and the 1980s. Uh, it was a season and a time. Of the, uh, how many of you remember the season of PTL and Jim Baker and all that? The, it, the, it, this stuff always happens, you know, Kenneth Copeland, and then you've got, you've got new people with new jets and new ministries asking for new money and saying, send your money to us, and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Well, in, in this time in the 70s and the 80s, they built a TV ministry empire and they did all kinds of funds and fundraising, and they brought in, on average, about $110 million a year. And in the end, they were convicted of mail and wire fraud. Uh, Jim went to prison. I believe Tammy didn't go to prison for a little bit, but, but they lost everything. And uh, I met Jim Baker at the Dream Center. I was there where Tommy Barnett, Matthew Barnett, and the whole crew, my pastor at that time, was close with them. And so I was in California at the LA Dream Center, and all of a sudden, who comes walking across the parking lot? Jim Baker, this person who had been on television for financial scandal and all this kind of stuff. And uh, as a result of that, at that time, I had met him, he had just remarried, and he was just like said to me, you know what, Paul? I wrote a book on it, but he said, I was wrong says, what I did was wrong, what I taught was wrong, what I said was wrong. Now, t later on in life, he tried re-engaging TV uh, ministry and finances in that sense, but 
I think his net worth went from like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Now his net worth today is like $500,000, where there are probably about five or six of you in this room, your net worth is that or greater. But, but um, the problem with the bakers, first of all, was that they were guilty because they were asking everybody, widows, old moms and grandmas were sending in everything to them. People who were going to churches would watch the show and instead of sending their giving to the church, they would send it off to this long distance media ministry that had no relationship or interaction or connection with these people's lives. And it, it is just crazy what happened there. And the problem with them was not only that they were guilty, but it was their doctrine that, cha that shaped the character flaws that ended up eventually ruining them. And it was a gospel called the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is the teaching that faith expressed through positive thoughts, positive declarations, and donations to the church draws health, wealth, and happiness into believers' lives. This gospel is irresponsible. It promotes idolatry of finances in certain ways because idolatry, you offer it up to a God in order to get something. God is not manipulated. You don't manipulate God and say, hey, you know, can, if I do this for you, you'll do that for me. That isn't how God operates. That isn't who he is. It's a relationship. He loves us. And uh, it's contrary to the teaching of Scripture. In fact, it amazes me from my missionary friends in Africa and the time that I spent in Africa, it blows my mind. Those of you that are originally from Africa, just go, uh-huh, uh-huh, if you hear this, how heavy the prosperity gospel sticks and is preaching and is going throughout Africa, a place that desperately needs finances, the prosperity gospel is being preached like crazy there. I'm telling you, I heard one of those. Somebody went, yup, yup. It blows my mind. I mean, like, you would think that, and in the United States, you would think that that wouldn't take place, but it does. Now, let me tell you, for every one person that has been a catastrophic example, and there are more that I could talk about, and I'm not trying to snipe Jim Baker's life, um, I would say that there are good examples that we don't hear about. Probably the greatest one is Billy Graham. Billy Graham held some of the greatest crusades. He is the evangelist, the United States Ameri American evangelist of the 20th century. And uh, he started around the Great Depression. He built a home originally with his own two hands with his wife. And he told his team that his salary would be the average median salary of America. Set his wage so that he was paid a wage. He wasn't paid compensation for or commission or anything like that. And um, any wealth that had come through was usually the byproduct of books that he wrote, but he kept the money that came from the ministry at a, at a sane place. And he's one of the few people, I think, that we can look back and say, wow, he, he finished well. Except, you know, Jim Elliott, but he didn't have much time. But you, you've got people who, there are many, many great examples. And, and here's the grievous part of this, is the bad examples put a gag order on the church on the topic of finances, and then pastors everywhere were seen uh, through the lens of these few people with skepticism, mistrust, animosity, and can you blame them? Can you blame them? Now, Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says this, the elders who address the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those 
who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. Do you know the word honor there is actually talking about value, it's actually talking about salary. What scripture is saying is, is that those who preach and teach the gospel are worthy of double salary. Like, Paul is making this statement. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not making a pitch for a raise. How do we deal with finances here in the church? Uh, the prosperity preachers were paid ridiculous, um, and some to this day, are paid ridiculous amounts of money, or but they just have a salary that's just out of proportion, crazy, or even in some cases, they were given commission, like you grew the church to 300,000 people, and we're gonna give you a dollar each year for each person on top of your salary, and it's just crazy. That's not how we do it at this church. In fact, the pastors do not set the salary for ourselves at the church. The church, the elders who we have elected, they go to a resource called churchsalary.com that looks at the size of a church, the part of the country that it's in, the experience of the, the, the leader, the educational background of the leader, and based off of that, based off of all the different people, at the end, that's how we distill down and get what we get for pastors. And believe me, the church takes really great care of us. We're not biding for votes, but even though the Bible says here with that double honor, there were some people there that said, I think it should be million honor. And they've shaken down the gospel. Now here's the reason why this is a necessary topic for me to talk about, especially central to our relationship with Jesus. Because I believe that the gospel has a principle and guidance for anything central to our lives. Jesus spoke more about money than the topic of heaven and hell combined. The New Testament's focus when it comes to finances is not trying to lay out for you again many of the things that have been being laid out clearly, but it's focusing on motive, discipleship, stewardship, giving as a sense of worship, and also um, things like self-control with finances. Money's a tool, it's not a toy, and it can either be handled with stewardship and holiness or idolatry and impurity based on our character. The tension with money in us is, is that really it's a necessary part of our life. Now, don't get me wrong, back before the time of Jesus and they didn't deal with, um, they didn't have a dollar bill system. It was around the time of Jesus that coins were starting to become part of it. So you have coin getting into the situation, but really most of it was commodities. People were farmers and they grew wheat and another person grew fruit and you'd go and you would, you would give of your grain or, and they, and to get some of the fruit or maybe you had fruit, grain and all that and you just, you sold off these commodities sometimes and that's how the whole system worked. It was really a barter trade kind of system until into the time of Jesus where they actually got into finances, but the tension for us is when money takes an, an impure stance in our heart to be and to do things for us that God never intended them to do. For instance, when we make money our security, when we make money the thing that makes us independent, so if we don't like something, we can just leave. We don't need that, we can go off and do. In fact, this is the danger of Hollywood and extreme wealth, is, is that people get extremely wealthy, they get extremely eccentric, they get extremely isolated, and then they get extremely weird, right? So if you're using it for independence, control, identity, if your identity, if your worth is coming from your fiscal worth, that's, that's something that God's concerned of because 
He wants you to see your value that you are his, not how much you is. Money is my happiness. Or just plain greed. Listen to these two verses here. Bible says to put to, it's Colossians 3, 5, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, that sounds practical. Impurity, yeah. Lust, yep. Evil desires, and then listen to this phrase, and greed, which is idolatry. And the reasons that the Bible calls greed potential in the category of idolatry is for the very reason there. We take the things that are intended to be our source, which is God, God to be our security, our independence, our controller, our identity, our happiness, and our contentment. We make money and having enough of it and having enough independence with it to be the thing that keeps us happy. You know what's funny? Some of the most messed up, insecure, in bondage, out of control, identity confused, sad, greedy people I've known have been poor and have been rich. And some of the most happy, joyful, godly, incredible people have been poor and have been rich. It doesn't matter the how much, it's not finances in and of themselves that are the destroyer, it's, it's if you allow your possessions to possess you. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul says, or Paul says this, he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice, it doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money, that pursuit of money. Instead of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we love our goals, our, our dollar figures, our toys, our securities, our 401ks, our investments, our businesses, all of those things take precedence and preeminence over them. We put ourselves in, a, in an unhealthy place. Paul said in Matthew 13, 22, Jesus said that, sorry. So, but this Paul says it. So, as for what was sown among the thorns, actually, before I say that, let me, let me tell you just in gist a parable. Here's Jesus, and he's saying a parable to them. He's talking about the gospel. He's not talking about money. He's talking about the message of salvation. And he says that there was a farmer that went out to sow seed, and he scattered seed. Now, if you go to Israel, it, 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 I was just recently there when they had the fields plowed, and it, I just, I'd never been there at that time, so I took pictures of the rows of it. I didn't prepare one for you, but just like a farm you would see that's already been dug up, the rocks are removed. And so then what would happen is, is the farmer would go out there and he'd just scatter his seed. He'd th he's throwing it, but as you're doing that, as you're towards the edges, some of it falls on the path around the field. And sometimes there's a section where there's just rock that's near the field. And sometimes the, it falls into a spot that isn't part of the farming area, but it's part of the field next to it where there's thorns and thistles and weeds. And, and so Jesus says, you know what? The gospel is like see, a sower that went out to sow seeds. He threw it all over the place, but some of it, not all of it, but some of it fell into the path and it got trampled. Some of it fell on the stone and the birds instantly took it. Some of it fell where it belonged. The majority of it fell where it belonged and produced fruit. But he said, there's some of it that fell in among the thorns and the weeds. And he says, as for uh, what was sown among the thorns, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and proves, it proves unfaithful. In other words, 
Finances are an important part of our life because it is here from the mouth of Jesus something that can actually choke the effectiveness of the gospel clean out of your life if that is not put in its proper place. Um, I've done more worry over finances than I have over my kids. It's terrible. How many of you would say, I've worried more about finances than things that are important in my life? Because you, you need it, right? Like, you need to pay the bills. You need to take care of things. So God talks to this, and we're going to talk to it. So what are tithes and offerings? What in the world is this whole thing? Now, in Christianity and Christendom now, we say tithe, like tithes, plurally, but this originally starts with, in simple, it's first seen in Judaism, uh, it gets translated into the Greek, and we even have a word for it in Old English called tolagotha, but in the end, it's just English is the way of saying tithe. It literally means a tenth. Now check this out. Lindsay, I'm so glad you're walking back here. Come on up on the platform. <laughs> She's like the darling of the church along with Sienna. So I'll pi I'm going to pick on both of you guys today. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I'm not picking on Sienna because she'll beat me up, but you won't. <laughs> okay, so, so let's say I have ten bucks, and then I give that ten dollars to you, but then I just say, I want a tenth of what I just gave you. And that's it. This is all I want. You keep all that. I just want this. Okay, y'all set. All right. Is that a good deal? Okay, cool. Hey, come back here real quick. Because uh, the reason I'm upset with her is, is she saw that I had, um, I had uh, starbursts, and in the middle of worship, or after, no, no, in the middle of pre-service prayer, when the pastor had his eyes closed and was leaning forward, she tried to grab my starbursts <laughs> and steal them. Now, Lindsay, you don't need to steal them, but... I do want you to know my favorite one is strawberry. There's like, there's a whole, are you serious? There's another strawberry right there. Hi. All right. So I'm going to take, there's 10 here, right? But I'm going to take one and you get to keep that. And you do, you get to keep the, the you get to keep the nine and you get to keep the $9. That, that'll come in handy for like Starbucks or something or whatever you drink. Or you could probably get like a half of one of these essential waters. So. But I'm all set. You hold on to it. Really hold on to it. Thanks so much. Okay. Good deal. Fair deal, right? All right. Cool. You can. Wait. Hey, come back. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. Sienna, I'm not messing with you. <laughs> Do you want some? Mmm. Excuse me while I enjoy this experience. Those of you watching on TV have just gotten up to your car and you're going to the store to get Starburst. I know it. So we'll see you next week. Here we go. That's literally what a tithe is. It's a tenth. And here's the thing that won't make sense. If this doesn't make sense to you, then the whole idea of tithing just doesn't. Because you'll say, well, I work my job. I have my skill set. I've got my intelligence. I'm the one that has the resource and leverages it. And yet in Deuteronomy 8, it says that God's fear was that the Israelites would think that it was they that acquired wealth and not the Lord that was the one who brought it to be. It's God that's given you the mind, the skill, the job, the possibilities, the resources, whatever they may be, whether it's an assistant check or you're the CEO of a corporation. We see 
if we are a follower of Christ, that all things come from God. And therefore, if he asks for a tenth of that, then why not give it to him? If we really acknowledge, it's a way of us saying to God, I acknowledge that all that I have from in my life is because of you. And so, Lord, I just give back a small portion, a tenth of what you've given me. And it's really that simple. If you have 10 oranges, one goes to God, uh, and nine goes to you. If you have 10 apples, ten, nine goes to God, well, one, one goes to God, nine goes to you. Um, that's the mafia, actually, if you flip it around. <laughs> but uh, had those mixed up. Sorry, I'm still recovering in my life from being around all those guys. So, so it, there's all kinds of fancy stuff, but again, too, Israel was a coin, it wasn't a coin-based culture, so giving was done in harvest and animals and, you know, all kinds of things, and coin was starting to get on the scene from the Greek and Roman Empire, but this concept of giving a tenth, a tithe, goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham it hears that his, his nephew Lot has been captured by the Canaanites. He runs all the way to the north of the country. He captures, the, he overtakes, this is incredible. Abraham is like 80, almost 80 years old, and the army is about as, it, it's almost like the length of New Jersey. And Abraham, overnight, his army books it all the way up there, overtakes them, they're outnumbered five to one, and he, he kills them all, beats them all, gets his nephew, gets everything, and then comes back, and there is the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom says, hey, uh, Abraham, why don't you keep that stuff? Just give us back the people and some stuff, and uh, you'll be rich. And Abraham says to him, I won't take a single shoelace for my sandal from you. So you will never be able to say that it was the king of Sodom. Only God will be able to say it was God that caused me to be blessed and to be prosper. He says, I don't take a single thing from you. And then as he was walking back and he had all the stuff, he says, by the way, let's stop by. I got a friend of mine that lives up in Jerusalem. His name is Melchizedek. He is a priest of the Lord God Most High, which is the word Adonai. He says, uh, yo, Melchizedek, what's up? How you doing? Yeah, I just recovered all this stuff. Now, it wasn't normally mine, but here, I want, I want to give you a tenth of this. And they partake in a, a meal, and they worshiped God, and Lot was, his nephew was saved. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of the people that Abraham rescued went back, and life moved forward. Well, guess what? Abraham's grandson, Jacob, has a similar experience where he's on the run, he wants to be blessed. Jacob is like that guy with a thousand business plans that never do go anywhere. He's, he's working an angle constantly. And he just thinks, well, maybe if I just get the right blessing, the right kind of blessing, you know? So his brother, his twin brother, was hairy, and he wasn't. In fact, Esau means hairy, like reddish hairy. And then Jacob means uh, uh, grabber, literally grabber. And in fact, 
This guy was trying so hard to get what he needed from life. When he was being born, his brother Esau came out first, and his little brother grabs his leg and yanks him back in. That's what the Bible says. Now, I don't know how literal or whatever, if it was just like partial kind of like that, but that's serious. I don't know if you've ever, my kid, when I first, Ethan, you're here. I saw you. The first minute you were born, they put you in that warmer, great place to take pictures, by the way, and, and he just gently put his hand around here. Jacob grabs his brother and says, I'm first. Pulls him back. But Esau becomes firstborn. And the father gives that blessing. And so what does Jacob do? I need my blessing. I need, I mean, he believes in God, but he can't, he, he wants to be blessed. And so he says, well, how does this system work? Well, my, my God through my father lays his hand on, on me and he's going to give it to my brother. So if I get in there and make him think I'm my brother, I'll take that blessing. You know, it'll just go woo, off and on to me. And so he manipulates and he works and he gets it. And, and he says, hmm, the voice sounds like Esau, uh, Jacob, but, but the arm feels like Esau. And he prays for him his blessing. And you know what happens to his life from that moment forward? Anything but blessing. <laughs> you see, his life falls apart. His plans don't work. His schemes get him in more trouble. His business endeavors fall apart. All of these things are working against him until finally, right? <laughs> Finally, there's a moment where he's going back and he hears that his brother, his twin brother, has hated him since he stole that blessing from his father. And he says, I'm going to kill him. And he hears that Jacob's coming back into the land of Israel. And so what does he do? He sends his he sends some of his family and some of his goods, and each of them are, are coming in waves, and they're saying, here, this is a gift from your brother Jacob. Here, he figures, I'll just gift him, and he'll spare my life. But Jacob comes to a place where he sends everybody away, and he goes to a brook called Peniel, which means face of God. It's not until you have a relationship with God that isn't based on, I just want to be blessed. I want things to go good for me. That was the poison of the prosperity gospel, the prosperity Prosperity gospel said that if you have enough positive hope, you have enough positive thoughts, you say and name it, claim it, blab, blab it, grab it, shake it, take it, you deserve it, you're a king's kid, you will have health, wealth, and riches beyond measure because that's what God wants to lavish on you. And finally, he got to a place, someone's saying, yeah, I want that. I do too, but I'm just kidding. But it, here's what happened. It wasn't about that. It was about him seeing God. It's about seeing the face of God. You want God. He's the treasure. And he can release to you everything that you need without problem and hassle. And it wasn't until Jacob began to wrestle with that angel. And let me tell you what, Jacob was a, a, a force to be reckoned with because an angel couldn't take him. And finally, the angel has to dislocate his hip and he's screaming in agony, saying, you don't understand if you don't bless me. My brother's going to kill me. I've wanted God's blessing my whole life. And the angel asks him this question. What's your name? That's funny, because that's the same question his father asked him when he was deceiving him. Who is it? Well, I'm Esau. See, Jacob means deceiver, supplanter, manipulator, grabber. And he's, he surrenders to the truth of who he really is. 
And he says, my name is Jacob. Instantly, when you and I come to grips with the truth about who is the source of blessing and how we receive blessing and we see the face of God, it's at that moment that God says, no longer will your identity be based off of that negative past that you had, but moving forward, no longer shall you be called Jacob, but you shall be called Yisrael, prince with God. And in a moment, all things in his life changed, not because of his wit, not because of the blessing, but because he had a face-to-face -face relationship with God. That is the place of blessing. So important. God didn't only give the Israelites the concept of a tithe, but also uh, with, with Jacob and with, uh, with Abraham, but it's also something that we see in a couple of Old Testament verses, and they're in there. I could give tons of them to you, but I'm gonna read them to you really quickly because time does not afford us much more here. Exodus 22, verses 29 to 30, they actually should be up there. It reads like this. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the overflow of your presses and your firstborn sons, and you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and your sheep. So what God is saying is two things about this. Number one, all of the commodities, because they're not a coin-based society, all the commodities that bring increase. If your lamb has, five, if you have five new lambs as a result of this, or 10 new lambs as a result of it, or 10 new cows, or 10 new ox, or uh, 10 more bushels of hay, whatever that increase is, he says, you bring it to the Lord, but notice he says right at the beginning, you shall not delay. I used to have friends all the time that were investors, and um, they were also Christians, but they held on to their finances, and, 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 to, and they would always take care of it at the end of the year because they felt they could do better with it. And then I had one friend that chose not to do that, and what was ironic was that he had less stress, less problems, and always did much better than they did because he just, as soon as he got paid, he released it to the Lord. As soon as he got increased, he released it to the Lord. That's what the concept of first fruits mean. It means before you, before you take that 100% harvest, the first thing you do is you work and you take that 10% and you set that aside for the Lord. And then if you need to eat, you tap into it from there. That's what first fruits and the idea of not delaying is, is the Lord saying, don't, don't work the angle, don't work the situation. Trust me, follow me, listen to me. And then in Exodus 23, 19, it says this, the first of the first fruits of thy land, that, I got this in King James, hold on. The first of the first fruits of thy land, thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. I just love KJV, baby. Um, it's good translation, it really is. All right, what's interesting is, is that this is all talking about anything that you have that increases. Now, today we wouldn't be talking about, we might be talking about additional homes, we might be talking about additional rent, we might be talking about, um, we might be talking about uh, raises, bonuses, uh, ongoing income or whatever, but it's talking the tithe of that tenth put aside, and it says this in Leviticus 27, they actually had a time where they gave even as many as three tithes in the third year. Listen to this. And a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value of it. Everything 
uh, every tithe of the herd of the flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. Listen to this. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If he does not make a substitution, both the animal and its substance becomes holy and cannot be redeemed. In other words, you put out your rod and you brought through ten sheep and you were like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That one's set aside for the Lord. Next group, one, two, three, four, five, six. Like, if it's me, like, I'd have been like, come on, scrawny. Hold on, wait, wait, wait. Okay, go, go, <laughs> go, you know? He's saying, no, you don't play that. You just, it, you just trust me, and you just let, you just don't, don't work the angle, don't work the odd. Just let the Lord bring through what needs to come through. And this really comes back to those firsts. Notice when I gave to Lindsay all of that stuff, I first took out that first fruit of uh, strawberry, and it was a fruit, and it was delicious, and I'm sorry, you know, I offered some to you, but you didn't take it. And then I gave her $9, but I first took out that one. That, that is the whole concept of tithing. But God, this, we see this in the beginning with the first tree. God says, you can eat from any of these. Just leave this one alone. I mean, what is it about us that, what, when is enough enough? When is enough enough? The firstborn children in Egypt, when the Passover happened, God said, I will spare your children, just put blood over the post. And then from there forward, they had a process where people would give to redeem back the child, acknowledging like we could have lost our children in Egypt, but we didn't, and so God did that. The first city, when Israel, in fact, there's some two pictures. I don't know if the, you're up in the media booth there, guys. There should be pots and pottery. This is, a, this is an amazing thing. The first city that Israel goes to take when they come into the Holy Land is Jericho, and God says, that first city is mine, leave it. What's interesting is, is they came at flood stage. God does a miracle. They put their foot in the water. The water backs up. They're all able to walk across. They pile up 12 stones as a remembrance, and they go to the city Jericho. They walk around it. God gives them the city, but God says this. That first city, don't take anything from it. In fact, the man Achan, there's one guy who did, and they found out who he was. His family was stoned to death, the result of it, because he was taking gold. God said, leave it alone. They had crossed over from the desert. I know where they crossed over from and what that's like. There is nothing, nothing there. They came across. They would have been hungry. The manna stopped at that point. God said, no longer will I provide for you in the wilderness. As soon as they came in, look at this next picture. All over the place at the excavations of Jericho, there is grain filled to the brim in tons and tons of these things. It was, the, it was the latter rain that brought in the harvest, and Jericho was loaded with food. They could have complained that they were hungry. They could have said that they had needs. They could have said that they were in want, but they obeyed the Lord, and they said, the first one goes to you, God. I don't want to touch it. And the proof of that, of that you're looking at grain that Joshua burnt with the city of Jericho when they took that city and devoured it that was left behind by Joshua. Physical proof of that, giving to the first, and of course, the first fruits belong to the Lord. So then, we're talking about tithe there, but what about offering? What's an offering? Um, in fact, the New Testament doesn't have a Greek word for it. They actually, they alliterate the Hebrew pronunciation for it, which is korban. It means sacrifice or sacrificial giving, as it's already, as if, it, and when you dedicate something to Korban, if I say, you know what, 
I used to have, when I worked in the uh, mortgage business with uh, Uncle Bobby, he used to say to me, they called me the Rev, and they said, Reverend, I want you to pray for this loan that it goes through. He says, if this one closes, I'm giving you a $1,000 commission. And I'd say, Lord, I just pray that we don't burn this old lady in this closing, this mortgage. We give her the right interest rate. And they'd be like, stop it. Stop praying like that. But I said, do you want, do you want, do you want that? And I was just like, Lord. And so sometimes it, it happened, sometimes it didn't. I don't, I don't necessarily think about it. I said, Lord, if it's no good for them, just let the whole thing deal fall apart. And they'd be like, ah, you get away from me, you know? But every once in a while it happened, they'd be like, here it is, Rev, $1,000. I'd be like, thank you very much, you know? Um, however, but, but that would get set aside as an offering. I would say, if that money comes in, I'm just going to give it to the Lord. That's what I'm going to do with it. And so when that money came in, it was korban. It was as if it had already been given. I didn't have second thoughts about that giving. I didn't change my mind. I didn't readjust the figures. I didn't rebalance it because I got an unexpected bill. I didn't decide to give half of it because uh, something increased by, by half of it. I said, that belongs to the Lord. I'm not going to touch it. And I gave it to him, and that was it. And, I find, and that's really what, it, what an offering is. There are all kinds of burnt offerings in the Old Testament, and they're all laid out for you. This handout is for you to look at for the next year. You've got more stuff in here you'll know what to do with, but look at this. There was the whole burnt offering. You know what that's called? The Holocaust. The Holocaust. That's when you take a bull or an animal and you burn it, nobody gets to eat any of the steak. Nobody gets to do anything. It all goes up in smoke to heaven. And that's what the Israelites were saying during the, the persecution of, the, of Nazi Germany. They said that we have been totally just lit up in smoke. We're like a fragrant offering to you, God. Help us, please. We're the Holocaust. We're, we're the Shaol. It's, it's, it's this, this offering that nobody got a cut from except God. Then there was what was called the cereal offering. This isn't Captain Crunch. It's basically saying, here's an offering from my harvest. I know I've given God a tenth, but here is a little extra from my harvest, and I'm going to give this to the Lord, and I'm going to offer that up to him on top of what God's done. Then there was the peace and fellowship offering. This was almost like communion. I used to say this to students because we're not giving offerings and sacrifice, but every once in a while you need to take your lunch or your dinner go alone to a place where nobody else is. And what they believed was that the Lord would join them in that communal meal, that koinonia, when we're with each other. And the Lord says, if two or three or more join together in my name, there I am in the midst. That's all coming from this language of koinonia and fellowship. But this peace offering was basically saying, if I have a meal with God, if I sit in his presence, if I'm just in his presence, peace will come into my life. There are times where I've just taken my lunch and I've walked away. I said, God, I don't need another friend. I don't need another movie. I don't need another dollar. I, I need you. I need your peace in my life. I just want to be whole. How many of you want to be whole? That's, 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 and they would make this an offering to say, God, here's this, just bring peace in my life. And then they would, they would have one that is representative of Jesus, the sin offering, and then they even had one called the guilt and restitution offering, which meant that if you went, to, you went and you offered up the sacrifice, and then on top of that, you took a bag of money and you went to the person that you offended, and you said, please forgive me. Imagine if we turn this into a part of culture in our world that when you wronged somebody, you didn't, you didn't get a lawyer 
you, you got before God and then you gave somebody damages because you ripped their reputation apart or you ripped the, their life apart or their peace or you ruined something to say, sorry is not enough. Please take this along with my apology. In fact, that offering Jesus mentioned, he says, if you're at the altar and you know that somebody has ought against you, leave your offering. Be reconciled to them. Then come back and finish that process. In other words, that whole process should begin with you making right your wrongs with others and then coming before God and saying, God, I didn't only offend them, I offended you. Here's what's interesting about the offering system is really only one of them two of them have to do anything with sin. They all have to do really with vertical and horizontal relationship for peace and relationship. So when I hear believers saying, you know, the sac you know sacrifices are no longer relevant, you know, what, what, what do you do with Hebrews where it says, no, we, we, now we offer up spiritual sacrifices to God in principle of making wrongs right, in principle of we don't offer up animals, but sometimes God sometimes asks of us something more than we might be comfortable with or we might, might want to hold on to for security or uh, is a part of our identity. And God says, just, just, just give it to me and watch what I do with it. D.L. Moody was a very famous evangelist in the United States, and somebody came up to him and said to him, Mr. Moody, I've put you in my will for $10,000. He says, why are you waiting until you die? He goes, give it to me now and watch what God will do with it and see with your own eyes. And the guy said, okay, wrote out a check, and he started the, um, boys and uh, the YMCA. Started the YMCA with that and a check that came from... Uh, C.T. Studd, famous football player. He's like the Tom Brady of his day. Those are all offerings, and there were all kinds of stuff. Now, it's important for you to understand and note a couple of things. The only, off, only offerings, uh, well, let me say it this way. The, somebody worded it really good. They said, despite this general tendency that we virtually refer to everything uh, as tithes, uh, it's not until we say the tithe proper uh, tithes do not become the tithe until much later in Christian history. Like you had tithe, but you had all kinds of tithes. And then you had, on top of tithes, you had offerings. So it's like uh, one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell, Doug Stewart, PhD from Harvard, actually, I thought I saw Dave Hodge here, had him as a professor. He said, in my estimation, the Israelites actually gave like 28% of everything they had to, to the Lord between festivals and and, uh, and this isn't me prepping you to say, and now our new tithes shall be 28%. Cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. I'm not saying that. I'm just keeping here with, with that. But he's, he's a wise, wise scholar. They used the free will offering and the tithe together to do things like build the temple, build the tabernacle, restore the temple, restore uh, and rebuild it. But here, let me just zip through very quick here a couple of disagreements. Mo I'd call these modern disagreements with tithing. First of all, hey, Pastor Paul, it's really good, but it's an Old Testament thing. Tithes and offerings are Old Testament. We're not under the law. Well, first of all, you have to understand the word implicit and explicit. Some things are said explicitly like the tithe or other times like when you give. It's not saying tithe, but it's implied. 
all through the New Testament, it's, an, it's implicit in the language. They're like, we're not going to have to go over the language here again of something that you know so very, very well it, because it's within the Gospels, within, Jew, within a Jewish context. They already got what you meant when you were saying. So many of the verses that are misinterpreted are actually missing the obvious implicit language that's there. So, first of all, Jesus criticized the motives of the Pharisees, but he also affirms the giving of the tithe. Listen to this, Matthew 23, verse 23. We've got that up in the slide, I think. <laughs> it says, Woe to you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth. Now he begins to refer to all their different uh, cult uh, things that they're, they're agriculture. He says, you give a third of a tenth of your spices, of the mint, the dill, the cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Hear me, there are some things more important than giving, right? Like, if you think the church is all about giving, then you've missed the whole point, but there are things of mercy and the stuff that Pastor Dylan like, came up here and shared, like of what it is to be in the presence of Jesus for the first time and know that your life is right and that God loves you and, and d d like all of that. But at the same time, he also comes back around and he says this, he says, listen, you should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the former tithing. It's right there. It's implicit in the language. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you should tithe. In fact, in Matthew 23, 23, he says, the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. Therefore, you should do what they say. They were in charge of the religious tone of certain things. And, the, and so Jesus himself put himself under that. And you say, well, it's the Old Testament. We're not under the law. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And most of the stuff that we are no longer obligated to in the law are things that are cultural. For instance, when, when Christians start coming to Christ, and it's not until uh, Gentiles start coming to Christ, it's not until Acts 10. And the epistles are letters interacting with that whole clash of cultures. Most of what they're saying is, is okay, so they got filled with the Spirit the way we did. They came to Christ the way we did, and they're not even Jewish? So what do we do here? <laughs> Some people said, well, they got to eat kosher. They need to observe the festivals. And you need to get circumcised. Touchy subject. All right circumcision, dietary laws, festivals. And Paul, throughout all of his letters, addresses all of these and says, don't put that on them. But does that mean that the Old Testament, we, this is a thing that we just really have done a poor job teaching proper in the 21st century in churches. Bible colleges are really good at this, but we don't get it into the church. Like, does it make sense to you now that I'm no longer under the law that I'm free to murder somebody? I'm free to commit adultery. I'm free to steal. Am I free from that law? No, it's talking about cultural nuances that are there. So in my opinion, that, that is not like an, uh, a strong enough argument to just carry through. So then here's another one for you. And we got a slide for this. The Bible says, I decide what to give from my heart. And they us people usually refer to 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your own heart to give, not reluctant or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Give him all you've got. 
So, um, sorry, that was a kid's church song. Just took it back with me. Give what you did. Now, the English here sounds really right. There's a, the earliest church document, some believe as early as 65 AD, a church document called the Didache reads like this. It says, of the money and of the clothings, of the shearing of possessions, take the first fruit as seems good to you according to the commandment. Now, that as seems good to you or for what you've decided in your own heart in English, in both of those, is actually a very poor translation. What it's saying, really, and I spent about like an hour and a half on the phone with Sam Kim. You guys remember him? He is an early church scholar. He's working on his PhD, and I've got access to different resources. He's got access to early church resources, and we just dug back and forth with all of these. Really, what the phrase better says is if you have a portion that you're going to give to God, you give to him not as seems good to you, but what everybody's harvest is different. Everybody's money is different. Everybody's flock is different. So as what seems good to you based on the portion of what a tenth looks like. That's literally what it's talking about. And my Kung Fu scholarship language there is strong. And you can call Sam and talk with him for six days on it if you want. So it's really saying here not what we think it is. Well, it's based on my heart. That reflects the tithe and the offering language, uh, not a new standard of giving that God's creating for us. And I, just with time not on our side, we don't tithe to the church. We meet needs like the book of Acts. I have a neighbor that needs something. Yeah, you, you should always be doing that. My wife and I are always doing that, but a lot of people turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. All believers were together and had everything in common, and they sold their property and possessions and gave to everybody that was in need. Now, that sounds like a new creation, a new standard, but it's not. Actually, if you went to the cult that lived by the Dead Sea that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community, they said in their uh, writings that anyone who came to the community had to give all of their possessions over. And you became part of the community, so you no longer used it. That whole thing fell apart. And in fact, what you see happening in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, is, is that they're just in this unique season of generosity. Barnabas, who was Paul's right-hand man, is the first one that steps forward, and he says, you know what, I got four houses. I'm gonna sell one of those because there's great need and there are people starving to death. And they were like, thank you, Barnabas. And then Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look like great people. And they said, we're gonna sell a house and we're gonna give it. And everybody's like, yay, praise the Lord. And, and so they come in and they lie about how much they took because they wanted to hold on to some of it. And then they get struck dead. I mean, like, good grief. There's things that are worse that people did, but it was almost like God was setting this example in there. And he said, we don't tithe to the church. We meet needs like the book of Acts, but that's really not there. I remember, you know, either of those is really bad. Just to hand all of your possessions over, that's really what PTL did in so many ways. Took people's retirements and fortunes and squandered it. Uh, Pastor Dylan and I have a friend. He went to the school. His name was Anthony Grieve. He was a famous rock star in a group called Pop Evil. They were opening up for all kinds of famous bands you could think of, and he got saved, and all of a sudden, he realized, I don't want this life anymore. I don't want it, and so he drives his nice, uh, huge Escalade or, you know, this incredible car back to the dealership, and he says, I don't want this anymore. You take it, and he didn't read the fine print, and he didn't walk through it, and they said, okay, sir, thank you very much. They reacquired the vehicle, and they continued sending him the payment notices. That's not a healthy thing. 
for some kind of ministry to ask of everything of you and then just forget you and, you, and not even be right or fair with you? That's just crazy. Uh, but the other side to it, I would say, to give as you see fit, the Bible says that the heart is wicked and beyond cure, who can note it? It's almost like God set some standards with tithing, but then he set some additional steps to kind of say, you know what? Let me put some guardrails here for you so that you don't set the standard, I do, but then let me challenge you to grow from time to time and take a step further and go beyond that. I'll never forget, and there are tons of places where that having things in common is just used as like, hey, Mikasa Sukasa, you ever wanna stay at my, um, rent, my, uh, my home? You're welcome to do so. My refrigerator's your refrigerator. You ever need to swing by and stop in and grab something? That's having things in common. It's not like they created this new kind of system. And you know, people say, well, I'm a, I'm a grace giver. Second Corinthians 8, 7 says, but since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in love, we have kindled in you. See to it that you excel in the grace of giving. We're no longer under law, we're under grace, and so we give according to grace. Well, can you say that your grace giving is like the grace giving of the early church? Is it as generous as Barnabas who sold off one of his four houses and gave that in order for needs to be met? Is it as generous uh, as somebody saying everything I have belongs to the Lord and if he wants all of it, he can take it? Is it as generous as the widow's might? Here's a crazy one for you. Um, Lindsay, come on back up. No, Derek, come on up. I'm almost done. I know I'm going longer than normal, but here you go, King Derek. Okay, all right. So, welcome to church. Yes. I have two olive wood hearts from the Holy Land, one for you and Lindsay for all the abuse you took today. All right, here goes this. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Lindsay, come on up. There you go. Okay. So, you gotta come faster, Lindsay, come on. Hold those real quick. Now watch this. In the temple, when they would take up the offerings, they would, they would pour their coins as they got closer to a coin-based culture into the bowl. And then when they did it, they would blow the trumpet. <laughs> this lamb had issues. <laughs> all right, go ahead. So watch this. So go ahead, pour this stuff in there. Go for it. Yeah, well, all of it. Go for it. So they would do that. Whoa, just like an emergency drop. Take a fistful or two and just trinkle it in there. As it was going in, it was making its noise, and they were going... I'm not Jewish, what do you want? So they would do that and everybody's attention would look and they'd be like, oh, yay! You know, like the, the, the um, who did the Jimmy Fund? Jerry Lewis, yeah, Jerry Lewis and Jerry Fund, you know, and they'd just be like, ah! And then this is, this is culture and they're like, yeah, praise God, what a generous offering. All right, that's great, new chairs for, for the temple. And then all of a sudden this widow comes in and she drops in two coins. And Jesus goes, yo! He said, that widow gave more than all of those other people because while they gave out of their abundance, she gave everything, thank you guys, she gave everything she had to live on. That wasn't a tithe, that was an offering. 
That was incredible generosity. You see, it's not a number figure, it's a proportion figure. And a lot of people say, you know, tithing is, you know, where it's at, and man, tithing's training wheels for giving. Are you kidding me? You know what, I, I did this just because I think it's important for you to know that as a pastor, I always provide, and I have for the board for our upcoming meeting, the exact figures of everything that I have given that has gone to the district. As a pastor, they say you don't tithe to the church so that you don't redirect those monies, but you give to the district, and that the same way that your church gives to the church, you give to this group, and you're not controlling those finances that are coming through. So I send that, but I had them write this letter so that you see that your pastor faithfully, consistently does this. Now, please do me a favor. Don't all of you call up Paul Iacoboni at 508-248-3700. Like, you drive nuts. But if you really, really got to know, you can have one of the board members. They can give him a call, but you don't even need to do that because the board members can tell you this is something that's faith and consistent in my life. Let me just give you a surprise, right? People are like, don't say what you've given or you'll lose your blessing. No, it's not. It doesn't work like that. God's not like a weirdo. It's, but let me tell you what my wife and I did. This year, we pledged $100 a week, $5,200 to mission beyond the tithe, and I also do ministry service from time to time with taking leaders to Israel and those kind of things, and inside one of the booklets that we make that we give to them, I say, listen, if this book's blessed you and you have been, received something great from here, don't give me anything. If you would, go to our church. There's a category. Please, none of you in our church don't use this. There's one in there that says Pastor Paul's Faith Promise, and what my wife and I do is, is beyond the $5,200 that we pledged, that any other additional money that comes into that goes to missions, goes to missionaries, goes to spreading the gospel around the world. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But that's nothing compared to the widow in our church who one time sent $2 in the mail and I knew that's all they had. Where are you at in the barometer of this? I mean, this isn't the PTL club and we're not trying to shake you down, but are you in alignment with this stuff? It's so amazing, you know, you can do something without becoming, but you can't become without doing something. And it's amazing how we can just know and even be Bible college sharp and not put into practice the things that we have. I'm gonna ask Mary Evelyn to come up here. By the way, just like Dylan, she had nothing to do with this message, it's all me. Um, let me close with a couple of thoughts here. Malachi 3, 8, 1 through 12. Will mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Notice it says into the storehouse, not to the televangelist, not to your neighbor. But the tithe comes into the storehouse of the Lord, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you that there will not be room enough to store it. I will, I, I will prevent pests and devouring your crops. Not only is God saying, I'm gonna bless you and take care of your needs, not your greeds. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glories, but he'll also pre he'll prevent some setbacks. This has been something my wife and I did when I was making $119. You know how meager that is? $119, volunteering my life to death in a ministry, living in a basement, or 
to any great gift or moment in our life, we faithfully kept to both the tithes and the offerings because we believe this with all of our heart. We found a house for $72,000 where there wasn't anything under a quarter of a million. We found a house for $220,000, the recent one we moved into when there wasn't anything under $550,000. That, that to me is God, the blessing of God, providing our needs, not our greeds. We don't give because we can get. And here's the thing, if you're still kind of like, well, I just don't believe it. I just don't believe tithing is something that, you know, uh, that you should do. You should know that there is a bookkeeper, there is a CPA accountant, there is a financial committee that combs over our finances for integrity. We're ready when the IRS comes. But wouldn't you think the God of the New Testament wouldn't lower the bar, wouldn't lower the standard? If anything, he would raise it. In the Old Testament, he says, Jesus, he says, don't, Jesus says, don't murder, right? But in the New Testament, he says, love your enemies. In the Old Testament, it says, don't commit adultery. And then Jesus says, if you even look at somebody lustfully, it's as if you've had an affair. In the Old Testament, it says, live for God. In the New Testament, it says, die to self. Despite all the generalizing and tendency of all of this stuff that we look at, at the end of the day, the thing that just really hit me was uh, Randy Alcorn's statement from his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He said, whether or not the tithe is still the minimum measure for those first fruits, I ask myself, does God expect it new, uh, in his new covenant children to give less, the same, or more? I found to many people the term grace giving simply means give whatever you feel like. The assumption seems to be that God no longer expects his people to give substantially or sacrificially. Tithing are the training wheels of giving, and it's when you listen, trust, and obey with that he calls us to greater biblical generosity. Do you know that if you're here today, if you've made more than $1,500 this year, you're in the top 20% of wealth in the world. If you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a house or an apartment, and have a responsible, reliable means of transportation, you're in the top 15% of the world's wealth. And if you earned more than 50000 annually, get this, hold, hold on to this, this is going to blow your mind. If you earned more than $50,000, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealthy earners. In the Great Depression, the average giving was about 3.3%, but that was at a time where people were sending their kids off with relatives, not knowing if they'd be evicted, not knowing if they could eat. Today, the average Christian gives 2.1% averaged out. And I ask myself, what's happened? Here's the thing. A person I was listening to said this, is that he was at a time where he stopped giving. And he said, you know, we just can't. He was a pastor. And he stopped giving, and he was on staff. And the pastor, lead pastor called him in and said, hey, bro, what are you, what are you doing? And he said, well, I just don't, don't think that it can, you know, work. We don't have enough money. And... And he said to him, you know, 90 is more than 100 when it comes to God. But he said, listen, this is what I'd like to say to you. He said, imagine if everybody in the church thought the way that you did. Or imagine if everybody in the church did follow Jesus' discipleship call to give. How many people's lives would be changed? And how many people's lives wouldn't be?
And he said that statement haunted him. He eventually left that church. He didn't get fired for that issue. They left that church. And God began to speak with his wife and him. And they changed that. And they've been for the rest of their days doing this. So whether you choose to follow my speaking here from scripture, or you believe different than my wife and I do or whatever, I want you to know something. I live this. I live it. Proportionately, sacrificially. I live it. We do far more than the things that I mentioned. And I, I was in seminary. My wife and I were sitting there and we were, we were broke. My wife and I went to an apple orchard. We couldn't even afford to pick apples. And she found $40 on the ground and she was like, ah. And then she struggled and something inside of her said, this isn't my money. She went to the front desk and she wrote a note. She's like, if anyone claims this, you know, please, but if not, call me at this number. Uh, you know how that works, right? <laughs> Nobody called. Then we went back that week and we're in the Bible college. We desperately needed $100. So she found $60 on the staircase and she's like, should I keep this? I mean, 40, 60, that's 100, you know? She didn't. She put a note in. She said, hey, anyone in the, the building lost their money? You know, someone came up and they said, she was smart enough not to put how much it was, and he said, I lost $60. She was like, this belongs to you. And it did. And then we went to church. At that time, we were going to Calvary. And my wife is sitting in there. I'm working in ministry. We are in college. We are flat broke. She is depressed to no end. We need 100 bucks. And all of a sudden, a woman in the church just turns around and she says, I don't, I know I don't know you and I know that you're on staff here. It's a big church, but, so, but I just felt like God wanted me to give you this. And she puts out and she gives her $100. You know what? God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. If we be the right people, if we do the right things, and know this, we're not here to shame anyone. I believe this with all my heart. When I gave my son candy when he was a kid, he just started mowing it, drooling all over the place. But then you know what he did? He held out his hand to share it with me. And I think that that's the way it is with God. Now understand, I pretended to eat the candy with drool. And it's not like God needs, but the kingdom, furtherance of the gospel, needs it. Here's what my challenge for you is this. Thank you for your patience of letting me speak on a difficult subject long. It would have been easier if it was like an exciting thing, but we keep records of, of giving here. If you've never done this before in your life and you want to start, Pastor Dylan, you just note all the new first-time givers. And here's my challenge to you. Do this this is what the, the Lord says in Malachi. He says, test me in this and see if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven. If you faithfully start this, give it, give it, we'll, so set aside everything coming in from new people that we can do. I just made your life a nightmare, but here's what I, here's what I want. I want you to be able to understand how God works. And if after 90 days, like God isn't tipping the scale in those directions or your heart is not in alignment with it, we'll give all that money back to you. We'll give it all back to you. My challenge to you is to step into that new part of discipleship. 
And if you don't step into it, you're not going to get dirty looks from me. By the way, I my eyes, my blue eyes, my black eyebrows, the dent in my head, all makes it look like I'm staring you down and I know something about you. Like, don't get, that's just me saying, I don't have my glasses. Is that Dylan over there? I need to talk to him. That's all that is. There's no guilt or shame, but that God would open up. And some of us, we just don't have yet right now, right? And here's the thing. If you're here and you're new to church and you're trying to figure out where Jesus belongs in your life, you've heard a healthy message about how man money management should be done. And here's the thing that I'm confident of. If what Pastor Dylan was talking about here early overtakes your life, my gosh, you'll already be lined up with this truth. Stand with me, if you will. Thank you for your time. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for this truth. And so we just say to you, like the prodigal fathers said to the son that stayed home, all that I have is yours. Lord, we have an inheritance in Christ Jesus. But some of us, we have a crisis in our life. Would you meet our needs? Would you begin to draw us into what it is to trust you? what it is to not be trapped by the tension of money, but to walk in truth, into biblical truth of what finances are. We give you glory, honor, and praise. I just ask this week would be blessed. I pray next week's prayer meeting would be amazing, that the breakfast at nine would be awesome, that our students would come back from today's session just with a great connection with parents, and that you'd continue to pour out your spirit on us week in and week out. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. And it's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen. Thank you again for being with us today. To listen to our messages, follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And go to ne-cc.org for all news, events, and updates. Thank you and God bless.